This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. My name is Roland Shu. I'm the Assistant Director of the Forum on Contemporary Europe here at the Freeman Spolgi Institute for International Studies. As one of our events, you can see the others at our website, fce.stanford.edu. Uh, and it's my pleasure to open the session and to introduce uh, Christoph Krombez, our um, visiting professor from Belgium, who will be giving the formal introduction of the ambassador. Christoph? Thank you, Ronald. It's a, a great honor and a privilege for me to introduce the speaker today, Ambassador Dominique Streyer. Ambassador Streyer is Belgian ambassador to the United States. He's one of Belgium's uh, top diplomats, and we are very happy that Belgium continues to send its best diplomats to Washington, and that on top of that, they continue to visit, they keep on visiting Stanford. Ambassador Strayer is a third ambassador in a row mm -hmm. who is uh, visiting Stanford and uh, giving a presentation here, um, following in the footsteps of Frans van Dalen and Alex Rijn, who were here uh, just uh, a few years ago. Ambassador Strayer has had a very distinguished career in uh, Belgian uh, diplomacy. He um, went to law school, has law degrees from the universities of Leuven and Ghent in Belgium and from uh, the University College London. He joined the Foreign Office in Belgium in 1974 and then was stationed in Vienna, in Lagos, in Harare and in Kinshasa. Also in uh, Geneva at the United Nations um, um, uh, represent, Belgian representation there. He's also been chief of staff to uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs in the early 90s, to Mike Askins. He w was deputy chief of staff and diplomatic counselor to the Belgian Prime Minister Jean-Luc Dehaene in the uh, mid-1990s. And since then he has been ambassador to Germany, ambassador to NATO, and uh, more recently, since December, he has been um, Belgian ambassador to the United States. I would also like to briefly introduce and, and welcome the uh, Consul General, the Belgian Consul General in Los Angeles, Ronald de Lange, and Rita Brau, the uh, Belgian Honorary Consul in uh, San Francisco. Ambassador Sturry is going to talk about security and policy issues as seen by the United States and Europe. He's agreed to talk for about 30 45 minutes and then uh, we'll leave uh, the rest of the time open for questions. Ambassador Strayer, welcome in Stanford and you have the floor. Thank you very much for both introductions. You know, I'm very privileged and honored to be here today in Stanford University. Uh, surprisingly, I never spent many, many years in the United States. I only spent twice a month in New York at the General Assembly. But for me, the United States is a, is a discovery, and I was enjoying it. Uh, after having been in Washington, you know, Ambassador has always to visit his Consul General, and that's why for the first time in my life, uh, I'm in California. I would say it's not a bad place to live. Uh, <laughs> and I wish that in Don we had as many nice campuses as here, and San Francisco is definitely one of the most attractive towns I've ever seen in my life. So uh, <laughs> I consider you as very lucky people, you know, to stay here and to study here. Thank you to Professor Corbin, who 
whenever, as soon as I was appointed to the ambassador, told me, you, know, you are going to Stanford. I said, yes, but where? Where is Stanford? <laughs> you know exactly where it was. Even although our royal highness, the, the successor of the, of the throne, you know, studied at Stanford University, so sooner or later you can say that the Belgian king will be, you know, a student, you know, of Stanford University. You had one president, President Hoover, who did a lot for Belgium. Now you will have, you know, sooner or later, you know, you will have a king who studied at Stanford University, and we sure will stay in good contact with uh, Stanford and with the United States. So while speaking about security, you know, and a bit more security, even although one of the aspects will be the European Union, it's quite clearly because, you know, my last posting was at NATO. And NATO is, as you know, uh, a crucial institution for security, uh, and therefore I think it's very useful to find out how United States and the European Union are involving in that security area, security aspect, and uh, very happy, you know, I saw Mr. Elliot, I don't know where he is, you know, who, uh, you know, worked at the National Security Council, so, you know, I feel in good company. So to start, I would first try to find a better definition of security, because I'm afraid there is at the moment a quite great difference in Europe and the United States when we speak about security. And I'm going, as usual, you know, to be a bit provocative in certain of my statements to be sure that there are enough questions later on to, to ask me further questions on it. You know, if you are asking, and I'm going to speak as a European, although the definition of what a European is is not always easy, uh, is when you ask a normal citizen about what is security, he will think automatically in terms of social security and road security. Uh, it's very surprising, you know. The evolution of Europe has been that we have been heavily involved in wars in the last century. But since, you know, the, the end of the Second World War, when France and Germany decided to live in peace together, in fact, Europe is a bit introvert and is thinking more in, let's say, European terms, without having, you know, this international aspect, you know. And therefore, you know, Security for us is how can the Belgian government pay more for my daily life? And security is, is everything in Europe because the state is paying for the education, is paying for the medical care, they ask that they pay for, for your holidays and everything. When I speak then about the United States, of course, I must automatically refer to 9-11. Uh, 9-11 has created in this country, you know, a trauma with huge development regarding, you know, how you feel your security and what to do with your security. You know, you're also a more global player, but suddenly you awoke, you know, in an atmosphere of insecurity, contrary to Europe, uh, and everything now is seen in the framework of 9-11 and the post-9-11 uh, 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 world of terrorism and other things. If you speak about terrorism in Europe, you know, it's more a local phenomenon, either, you know, in Spain or in other countries, but if you ask an average Belgian today in the streets, do you have any fear of terrorism, you will say we don't know exactly what terrorism is. You know, we had about 10 years ago a very, very small terrorist group about the CCC, uh, the people are still in prison, but for the rest there is no terrorist awareness as you have in the United States. And I think that's very important, you know, when we speak about terrorism, what uh, security means is that we have a totally different approach in the United States and in Europe. Now, if I take the latest development on security, slowly emerge a totally new dimension of the word security, which is less bound to, you know, terrorism, 
but a lot of new elements are entering into the sphere of uh, security. It, you know, will have between now and 20 years enough water, enough energy, enough raw materials. And also in the United States have seen that a group of US generals have uh, said quite clearly, you know, that sooner or later some, you know, disputes, or not to speak about wars, could find their origin, you know, in a lack of water, raw materials, energy. And that is a new development, you know, which will be very, very interesting to follow, and which potentially could be far more dangerous, you know, than the terrorist threat, is that, you know, all societies developing and increasing their welfare, there will be a far greater need for a certain number of elements, which maybe will not be, you know, uh, there for all people in sufficient amount. And that is an element, I think, in the future thinking of all university students and all politicians, you know, is have a better understanding of what are the real elements to make the life of all citizens, you know, indispensable. Security, if I go back a little bit in, in history, was always an element which was to do with a territorial defense, where now security becomes an element, you know, of welfare of the individual citizens. Uh, you know, defense was originally everything which had to do is that to avoid invasion, you know, of a third country of your own country, where now suddenly the politicians have to think in terms of welfare of the individual citizens. You know, if a politician is no more able to provide water, energy, raw materials, food, you know, to his population, he's going to lose the elections. He, they are no more thinking, you know, our soldiers, our defense forces are no more at the border just to defend the soil, you know, what was owning, you know, what was your sovereignty was a soil element, you know, territory. That has totally disappeared. So, you, you see already you know, how difficult it is to speak about security, a certain European view, a certain US view terrorism, and a new development, you know, in the world, what security is going to be between now and 15 years. And I think nobody is able to define today what the elements of security will be between now and 30 years. Having said this, then, you have to find out which are now the institutions which are supposed to take care of our air security. Because, you know, we're terms in diplomacy, you're always uh, thinking in terms, you know, of who is taking care of that element of security, which is difficult to define. Of course, it is first of all an element of your own governments, and there you know we can speak about the national policy towards security. But strangely enough, you know, in the globalizing world, it's quite clear that it is the international institution who are playing more and more a role because the interconnectivity, the relationships between all nations take place, you know, in international institutions. According to the Belgian way of thinking, you know, and I'm sure Ronald is going to confirm, the Belgian diplomats have been, uh, you know, uh, brought up with three words in the international uh, diplomacy and school. It's the word United Nations, NATO, and European Union. And there, of course, Mr. Trombe will be happy that I will say a few words about the European institution and defense. But let's say for Belgians, you know, the institution of United Nations remain the cornerstone of peace and stability in the world. But let's be clear, we all know that the United Nations has disappointed a lot of persons regarding, you know, their positive input into peace and security. And I think, you know, it's enough that I cite a certain number of words, you know, as uh, the crisis in Rwanda, you know, where they were not able to stop genocide. 
Srebrenica, you know, uh, during the crisis and the Balkans, not to speak about Darfur, where systematically everybody will say, you know, they are not giving the results expected, you know, from the international institution of United Nations. Why is this? It's probably also because United Nations started with 60 members and has now 192 members, and that some of the basic elements of the United Nations, let's say, the super uh, role played by a certain number of superpowers, is from time to time put into uh, uh, question. Also, the fact that the United Nations has enlarged its area of intervention. You know, when we speak about United Nations, it's not only Security Council, General Assembly, but you can also speak about ECOSOC and about all agencies, you know, international labor organization, health organization, other. So, United Nations is covering everything at, at the moment and makes also that the primary role of peace and security and for the student studying, you know, the Treaty of, United, of the United Nations, you know, the UN Charter knows exactly the difference between chapters 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, and other things, the key of the thinking. And we are proud at the moment of being a non-permanent member of the Security Council for two years, where the United States, of course, is a permanent member. So there is, at the moment, a heavy involvement of Belgium in whatever crisis there is, being Kosovo, being Darfur and other things, we are voting, you know, on the Security Council at the moment. But that's for the United Nations, whose evolution, as you can see, is not exactly the one we had expected, and we share in certain areas, you know, the disappointment of the United States, about the real strength and possibility of the United Nations to have a positive contribution, you know, to peace and security in the world. Then we're coming, you know, to the institution I know best is, of course, NATO. NATO is a product of the Cold War and was founded in 1948-49, you know, following, you know, the crisis of the Cold War. But, of course, the Cold War finished, you know, everybody was asking the question, what about NATO? There was the school who was saying clearly, you know, I'm referring to a famous article, you know, and I'm speaking, you know, with a Latin word which was very well understood by one of the Belgians here who is studying Latin and Greek here, NATO delenda est, that is, NATO has to disappear, you know, according, you know, to the famous uh, sentence, Cartago delenda est, that we all learned during our uh, studies uh, in the Belgian classical education and other things. But that was, NATO has no more sense. But suddenly, if you take the history of NATO, there are three periods. The period of the Cold War, where the key word was containment. You know, NATO was made without intervening, you know, to contain the Russian and the communist threat. Then, after you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall, we enter into the second period of NATO, which were the humanitarian intervention, you know, within Europe and mainly within the Balkans, where suddenly every found it interesting to give a new sense to NATO, and there, surprisingly enough, you know, it was the first time NATO used force, and even used force without a UN resolution. Very important to find out where most countries are always insisting, and Belgium mainly, that you need always a UN resolution before you undertake any military action there, because the humanitarian dramas of the 500,000 people, refugees, you know, on the roads of Macedonia, Kosovo, and other, NATO intervened military with his full strength, you know, to bomb Belgrade and other cities, you know, in Yugoslavia. That was the second period. But after that, suddenly, we entered in the third period of NATO, which is the period, you know, what we call the out-of-area. And that's a very interesting turn and transformation within NATO. But that transformation, you know, is going together with a lot of difficulties, uh, because, you know, 
a certain essence of NATO has changed in the meantime, you know, and following, you know, the language we are using within NATO, we are using, you know, the expression from a uh, security consumer, that means that we were consuming security and the United States was protecting Europe. The United States wanted us to be a security provider. That means that instead of just looking what was taking place within the European borders protecting against an attack, suddenly the United States said, why not provide security outside the NATO borders? But you know that concept of leaving the area of our national territories to project peace and security somewhere outside you know, Europe is, is a totally uh, evolution, and I must say revolution, which is difficult to assume for a certain number of, uh, of countries. Second element, you know, which we were sharing within NATO with a great difficulty and with a great intensity, was also, is, has NATO to become, you know, and you will immediately understand what I'm saying, an instrument of democratization, you know, which is, you know, and I hope you all follow your own national policy, you know, you find the basic element of the Bush policy is, you know, to project peace and security abroad and to help, and then, you know, promote or impose democracy. You know, there we can have a long discussion, but it's a fundamental issue now within NATO. Has NATO been made, you know, to also project democracy in other countries, or do we have to wait that democracy is growing within the countries without having it helped, imposed, promoted by the Western nation? And the third element of discussion in that transformation of NATO is that, of course, our area of interest was mainly, you know, the communist world, and suddenly under the US impulse, you know, we were only thinking in terms of broader Middle East. But you see, how fundamental, you know, the discussions are at the moment within the key security institution in the world, you know, NATO, is that we have changed a lot of basic elements, you know, of the approach we have when founding, you know, in 1948-49. Now in 2005, following 9-11, always, you know, whatever we do, whatever we think, it's always post 9-11 at the moment. Uh, even if the way we uh, felt 9-11 is not as strong, you know, as within the United States, but within the international institution where we are member, you know, it's quite clearly that 9-11 is a key element in the way we are thinking. Having said this, you know, I think uh, that's always the way I have presented. Uh, NATO is playing at the moment definitely a key role in peace and security and in different ways. You know, I've always presented that in three ways and I call it the three pillars, you know, of the NATO contribution to peace and security. First of all, and it's maybe the major, you know, contribution of NATO and thanks to the United States and later on I will speak about the European Union, of course, is that, you know, uh, they have enlarged themselves, you know, the policy of enlargement, which makes that more and more European countries are members of NATO, which means that in the long run, war on the European territory and the European continent becomes impossible, you know, which is the major contribution, you know, of NATO, where our continent, you know, uh, and your parents were all coming somewhere from Europe, of most of them from Europe, we had 15 centuries of internal fights, which culminated, you know, in the two most well-known wars in you know, World War I and World War II, 
you know, that was the essence of Europe, nations fighting each other, not going back, you know, to Napoleon and further, but you can go back, you know, to 843, the Peace of Verdun, uh, not to speak about the, the Romans, you know, uh, which invaded Europe and which was also created an element of peace and stability and certain state, but which was destroyed later. But the fact that we can take up all European countries within NATO is, you know, the major contribution to peace and security. We, we are making, we're putting an end to 15th century of internal fight. And therefore, you know, it's very positive to take up countries like Poland and later on also all the Balkan countries and maybe also the three Caucasus countries because, you know, in Article 10 of the NATO it's quite clearly said that all European countries can enter NATO. Uh, this is an element which could also sooner or later bring Georgia, Azerbaijan and Armenia within Europe where there, once again, you know, once member of the of NATO, there would probably never be any war anymore between you know Armenia and Azerbaijan or between Armenia and Turkey. So, never forget this contribution of NATO, which is one of the most uh, fundamental contribution to peace. Second element of the security policy of NATO is quite clearly also the partnerships policy we have engaged at the moment. NATO is opening his door to a large number of partnerships. First of all, with all previous countries, you know, of the Soviet Empire, you know, which is also Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan and all these countries. Second, with most of the countries of the Mediterranean area, and since short also the Gulf Cooperation countries, which means that, you know, NATO is showing not an aggressive, uh, you know, phase, but is reaching the hand to all the countries which are surrounding, you know, Europe and the North Atlantic area, uh, you know, the United States, do not want that Mexico becomes a partner of NATO. They consider that they can deal, you know, with Mexico on their own. That they don't need, you know, uh, the, the the Europeans to deal with Mexico. You know, we will see later on if sooner or later it's not useful also to bring Mexico into that type of uh, institution. You know, you have to think progressively. In other words. The third element after the enlargement, you know, and the partnership, and that is the most critical is that suddenly we decided also to enter into operation outside the European continent. And there, you know, I'm thinking systematically about Afghanistan operation, where suddenly, you know, I can't speak you know, the length about the evolution, how NATO entered Afghanistan, which is one of the reasons of the problem and the lack of engagement of the Europeans. We never took the decision, you know, to enter Afghanistan as NATO as such. You know, it's a UN decision. <coughs> And the UN decision was simply giving the lead of the Afghan operation to, uh, to the NATO. NATO, you know, the main characteristic of NATO is, you know, an integrated command force, you know, which is the real strength. It's always a US general, you know, the supreme allied commander of Europe, who is heading all the military operations, you know, of, of NATO. Who even, you know, I'm always saying, you know, to the Sakurs, because he's always living in Belgium, I say, in case of war, he's even above the President of the United States because he's taking over the command of all American troops, you know, and taking over the real command on the battlefield of the But the fact that we are going to areas after Afghanistan is of all creating a lot of tensions within NATO because some do not find it, you know, as an absolute necessity to go to Afghanistan. There we can discuss, you know, what is the strategic importance of Afghanistan and why do we have a double operation? A U.S. operation, operation enduring freedom, you know, and the ISAF operation, which is a NATO operation at the moment. <coughs> now, coming of course to an area which is going to interest Professor Crombie, is that in the meantime, also 
we have seen, you know, that Europe becomes very people. <coughs> I'm speaking too much. <laughs> you know, Europe is becoming for us an essential element also in the contribution of peace and security. For the simple reasons is that a parallel development with the integration, you know, of most European countries within NATO, you have the emergence, you know, of the European Union, which originally, you know, as probably is stated by Professor Fourbet, was purely an economic factor, as an economic union, but which slowly develops also, you know, elements of a political union. And if you speak about a potential political union, and I agree with many, you know, that uh, the, the views which Belgium held regarding you know, the future of the European Union is mostly you know, to the United States of Europe, elements which is not shared by most of the Europeans who wants to keep far more elements of sovereignty. But within that evolution, it's quite clear that we have uh, an element a common foreign and security policy. For the first time, you know, and I'm not going to all the dates when that was done, it's through a certain number of European summits, you have the word, and that's very important to remember, Europe's trying to build a common foreign and security policy. And as soon as we had said we want to have a, a common foreign and security policy, we developed a European security and defense policy. You see, so that the first element was a common foreign policy, which is already extremely important not easy to achieve for the simple reason, you know, that three countries, and mainly, you know, the UK, France, you know, with a long uh, historic tradition, you know, of imperial uh, powers, you know, do not like to give away their own uh, foreign policy. Uh, Germany, you know, in the meantime, being a big power again, also do not like to have, you know, to have a common policy. But immediately after saying we need a common foreign policy, we said also we need a European defense and uh, security and defense, which means that we are slowly developing also the nucleus, you know, of a, a certain European army through the battle groups. You know, we have for the first time a Solana paper on European security. Strangely enough, you know, there is a main difference, you know, there about different uh, differences we have between approaches. You know, I always remember, you know, that the key of the US defense and security policy is that in all circumstances, they have to be able to, de to defend themselves alone. It's quite clearly written, you know, in your last security paper. You do not need absolutely allies. You, you write quite clearly that in all circumstances, you should be able to defend yourself alone. The first security document of the European Union is quite clearly a regional paper. We are, you know, interested in our own security and in the surrounding countries, but we we have no vision of a global world vision and other things. But a small country as Belgium has learned through its history that it can never defend itself alone, because you know, as long as we defended our neutrality, every 50 years, you know, there were the Germans crossing over our territory and not respecting our neutrality. So now, since 1945, we have decided that the key of our security and defense uh, policy is the integration of a multilateral institution. So you see quite clearly the difference between a big country, which in essence remains somewhere a unilateral country, um, you know, because you are the superpower, the predominant power in the world and the most powerful nation in military terms, 
when the essence of the Belgian defense is at the moment we rely on our neighbors and systematically we diminish our budget, say, you know, our neighbors can defend us, we don't need to, to, to need our own, own defense. That's surely safe. But you see, that element, you know, of European defense becomes more and more important, although we don't have the military strength. And there we are open, you know, to a heavy criticism of the United States, saying that if you ever want, you know, a solid security policy, you have to uh, give a certain amount of money, you know, or to provide for a certain amount, you know, within your budget. Your part of the military budget is around 4.5% 4 of G your GNP. Belgium has approximately the lowest contribution of its GNP in its defense policy, simply for the reason that we say now that, that our good neighbors, France and Germany, are not fighting anymore, we can spend much more uh, money, you know, to, in drinking beer than in the, spending it in defense. Yeah, we are very strange people, develop, you know, that we enjoy life, you know, uh, you, know that, you know, I'm sure if I, I ask two words about that, everybody will say the country of chocolate and beer, and not about the strong defense policy. That's why I was subject to heavy criticism by my American colleagues, you know, I don't want to raise the name uh, Ronnie uh, Rumsfeld because, you know, he was never happy with Belgian attitude in whatever we did with the defense issue, but now he is gone and we try to develop a better relationship. <laughs> you see how important it is when you see these three institutions, how we could cooperate together. That is, we'll think, one of the key issues. But, you know, having said now the three institutions, I would like shortly, you know, to raise a certain number of, you know, present difficulties in the way we approach, you know, uh, seen from the United States and, uh, and the European angles the problem. You know, I have mentioned a certain already indirectly, but a certain keywords will show you that nevertheless there is a basic difference, basic difference which in the end I will say we should bridge in order to come to an indispensable cooperation between the two sides of the Atlantic. But the basic elements where there is at a certain moment a certain element of tension are at the moment, you know, what is the exact threat evaluation. That is a key element at the moment. You have a, a high degree of threat evaluation, of threats, uh, suspicion, threats, danger, where in Europe we don't share that, that element. You know, that's why you speak about the word war on terrorism. We refuse the word war. We speak always about fight against terrorism. It's a crucial element in the present you know, approach of the world situation. We are less open, you know, to the terrorist threat than you are at the moment, due to the 9-11. Second element, you know, which differs between Europe and the United States, and that's a word which in NATO at the moment is maybe the key word of a certain uh, difference, is how global should Europe and the United States be and NATO be. And when I speak, you know, NATO it's automatically also European Union, because you have that basic difficulty is that, you know, most of the members, you know, are members and of NATO and of the European Union, which is, of course, very difficult to be members of two institutions taking care of uh, peace and security at the same time. But not all members of NATO are members of the European Union, and not all Europeans are members of the European Union and NATO, uh, which is also very, very difficult. Mm. But so, the word global is one of the key words in discussion. How global should uh, NATO be? And the, the word global is always is that we consider that you know, in the present circumstances, the asymmetric warfare, you know, where we face the biggest military alliance, you know, is facing the smallest potential enemy, you know, because, you know, if you take uh, the Bin Laden group, 
it's maybe 5,000 people, and there are, you know, more than one million soldiers, you know, in, in NATO. So it's a fight between a million people and 5,000 So you see the difficulty of finding the, 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 the right answer. Third element, you know, where we probably defailed slightly, you know, in how far should we use force? You know, the Europeans, having suffered immensely during the last Second World, the, the, the two World War, are more reluctant, you know, to use force. Where the United States at the moment, you know, is more inclined, you know, to show a certain element of military strength, and we are more reluctant to engage in military operation. You know, the difficulty in Belgium at the moment, you know, is convince the people, and I'm referring to an expression which we were using at the beginning of the Second World War, is it worthwhile to die for Danzig, you know, which was a, a town, you know, which the Germans were taking over? We say no, and now, you know, in Belgium I'm using, is Belgium prepared to die for Kabul? And the answer of the public opinion and my minister is quite often no, because we do not realize what is the real danger of, of Kabul. You are prepared to use force in Afghanistan, where we say more, no, we are in a UN stability operation, and we should refrain, you know, from using too much uh, force. There was an element there of discussion within NATO, which was incredibly, you know, revealing of some differences between a community which nevertheless share the same values, you know. That was a discussion when starting to fight the Taliban in the South, you know. I was hearing the US permanent representative saying, you know, in the US mentality, it's very positive, you know, to explicitly speak every day about the number of Taliban we were killing. Uh, she said that the US public opinion need to hear, you know, how many people you kill in Afghanistan to prove that they are in the right fight. When most of the Europeans, you know, in NATO say, let's kill them, but don't publish it on the first page of the newspaper, because our public opinion is not able to absorb, you know, the killing of other people at a certain stage. You see how a community, a Western community, which we are all members of, has quite often, you know, a different approach and very practical issues. You know, she was telling, I need to be able to print tomorrow morning that we killed 50 Taliban, and the Europeans say, please, if we do it, don't mention it. You know, you see how difficult it is to, to work in the security area with a fundamental approach. Fourth element, you know, which makes the present situation very difficult, you know, and there, you know, I'm criticizing nobody, because we're all weak, in the present circumstances of great change, it is extremely difficult to give the exact political guidance. You, you feel quite well that whatever we undertake in peace and security, nobody has at the moment, you know, an exactly clear policy of what we should achieve, within, within which limits, within which time frame and other things. You know, we engage in a certain number of things, but there is a lack of global vision how the world should evolve. Uh, that is why we were living in a very easy period during the Cold War. I'm still a product of the Cold War diplomacy. There was one enemy, there was one target, there was one structure to attack. You know, it was everything was let's wait that the Russians or the communists attack us, and we will engage our army to conquer Moscow. It was quite clear. Uh, we never did it. We were at the, at one moment during, during the Cuban uh, War. We were very, very close to a new nuclear war, and that has been really, you know, uh, it's thanks to one Russian uh, salesman who never, you know, launched a certain weapon, you know, that we survived that crisis, uh, because the response would have been immediate, rightly, you know, uh, it, that was the response to me. But now you feel politicians, they are a bit lost, uh, you know, they don't know exactly. It's now more than five years that we look for Bin Laden, 
we have never been able to find him. You know, can you imagine? You know that the most powerful military institution with satellites all over the world listening to everything what's happened in Afghanistan and in Pakistan, and we are unable, you know, to kill the most dangerous political, you know, figurehead of the revolution, Bin Laden, you know, which means that we are, you know, in a type of warfare which is extremely difficult to guide and, you know, to find exactly what we want. We have new nations coming up, China, Russia, and other things, so they are also putting, you know, the leadership position of the United States into question, and the United States has difficult to find out exactly what is the role of the leadership. You always speak about, you know, leadership is democratization, you know, and imposing it, you know, and providing peace and security outside your walls, but it is contested by a lot of, of people. Fifth, of, fifth element, you know, but I touched it already, what is the exact relationship between the UN, NATO, and the European Union? Uh, I call it the, the, the Bermuda Triangle, because nobody knows exactly how to relate to each other. There we have, you know, a relatively easy view as the United States you know, being you know, the cornerstone, NATO being, you know, the most essential security element, but we also want to give, you know, a role to the European Union. We pretend always that the European Union can undertake, you know, military operation outside NATO, where Americans mostly, you know, and referring to the Berlin Plus agreements, you know, and we can come back to that, and to some say, no, you first have always to ask NATO if they want to do it. If NATO refuses to do it, then only the European Union can do it. And there you is an element of friction at, at, at the moment. And finally, you know, it's exactly the role, you know, between the United States and Europe there. How can they work better together? These are the key elements of, of differences at the moment where we have to work together to find a solution. When I mentioned, you know, issues, you know, I think I mentioned already one. If there's two issues at the moment, and I'm not referring to Iraq, because, you know, much to, to regret of many, you know, the Europeans consider Iraq not as their issue. And we, we can, you can criticize Europe about it. I'm open to, uh, to that criticism. But since the decision is taken, most European Union have said, you know, we do not consider it as a good decision, so please solve your problem for <coughs> yourself. This is not a very intelligent approach, because it's quite clearly, you know, that the further development of the Iraq crisis is a crisis also for the Western world as such. And so we should also try to help you to find the best possible solution to Iraq, but I'm afraid that at the moment nobody has a right answer, you know, for the, the, the best solution for the Iraq issue at, at the moment. So therefore, I'm not going to speak about it at this stage. Two elements where we now, you know, have to take, you know, a common approach, but in both cases it's not easy. You know, it's the issue of Afghanistan, where we are all together as NATO engaged. And there I think, you know, we should work together, you know, but not only in the military aspects, there, you know, I think we have to work much more in the line of what the Canadians are always proposing. It's the 3D, uh, you know, approach of any political crisis abroad. That means that we have to combine, you know, the defense elements, the diplomatic elements, or the political elements, and the development uh, elements. You know, it's quite clear that what the people are expecting, and I may sound provocative in a certain way, when the U.S. is arriving somewhere, what the people expect is may, maybe not in the first place, you know, democracy and elections. What they first want is Coca-Cola, cars, you know, if everything which made your society, you know, the most attractive society abroad. It's not your military strength, 
which attract people, it's you know, your way of living, you know, which make it very attractive for the people. What they want is schools, hospitals, you know, roads, cars, computers, uh, blackberries. That is what makes the United States attractive. You know, cell phones, you know, whenever they ring, you know, and it's useful to hear them from time to time to wake everybody up and all that. That is what they expect. They do not expect a military presence. And that's why after a, you know, a liberation war, we should develop much more quickly, you know, a very strong development policy, which made that if you take the amount of money spent in military operations should be catched immediately by doubling it, you know, in the development side. And there we are all, you know, not doing what expected. I've always said to my ministers, you know, when you give one euro or one dollar on the military side, you should double the amount, you know, in cooperation, you know, uh, road hospital development. You know, if we fail to do that, that is what they expect from the Western civilization. You know, it's you know an improvement of their daily uh, daily life. Mm -hmm. The political element is, you know, and I know they are maybe criticized, is not that much, you know, to give them the illusion of democracy. Uh, the illusion of democracy is bringing them, you know, to vote. But, you know, we were faced, uh, you know, a few months ago with the election in Congo. When in the middle, you know, of the tropical forest, you give them the choice between 36 political parties, you know, that is a political nonsense, you know. You should bring a, an element of reconciliation among the people in the country in order to work together and to learn what democracy and the political game is. For you, political game is easy, you know, it's sooner or later a choice between two parties, uh, between, you know, two candidates to, to, uh, to the presidency, between two parties. But asking people who have no political tradition to make a, a choice between 36 parties, you know, is the biggest nonsense you can have in, in life. It's wasting money, you know, the uh, elections, you know, in Afghanistan, in Congo, have cost $250 million or euro, you know. What they were expecting were roads, you know, and schools and water and improvement of their, of their daily life. Second issue, which may be even more critical at the moment, and that's an issue, you know, which I hope is not going to create, you know, huge disputes between our two parts of the Atlantic uh, Ocean, you know, is the missile defense. Uh, missile defense is a crucial element, you know, in our future defense. It could be given, you know, uh, could be at the origin of a bigger split, referring, you know, to the missile issue of the 80s, you know, which is totally different from the present missile defense issue. But the way it is presented at the moment, give raise, you know, to a lot of tensions, because there, you know, the Belgian approach is we should discuss it, but let's discuss it collectively within NATO, where we have the impression that, and I understand the reason, because most of the political parties, you know, in Europe are reluctant to accept the principle of missile defense. The United States, to make some progress, is now taking a more bilateral approach towards Poland and Czech Republic to, in order to say, let's install the first elements there without having a collective agreement within NATO. And there, I think, there is a potentiality, you know, a potential issue which is there, very dangerous in splitting up our Western world once again, is how far should we go in missile defense, which I personally think is an indispensable evolution in our defense. Because you have to bring it back to the famous Article 5, which means that if anybody is attacked of the NATO countries, every other will help us and other things. So it is a core element of protection of the civil society, because you know it's not a shield to protect a military battlefield, but it's a shield to protect the population. So we all gain, because sooner or later, missile will become a, a, a normal element 
of aggression by many more countries than you think. The missile uh, technology is not so difficult to develop. If you can make a missile, you know, which shoot at uh, 500 kilometers, within a few years you can make one which shoot at 15,000 kilometers. You know, that's not a real difficulty. So therefore, I'm favoring it. But the way to sell it, you know, and to bring Europeans, you know, to contribute to it is an element of presenting it in an intelligent way. This being said, you know, you feel that security uh, issues are extremely complex at the moment. It's not easy, you know, to define an easy security policy. I'm absolutely convinced that we have to work, you know, through the three multilateral institutions I mentioned. We have to be aware that there are a certain number of issues, different approaches. But I remain absolutely convinced that the alliance between the United States and Europe remains an indispensable alliance to face the challenges of the future world, being the future world which will be your world. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ambassador, for these illuminating uh, comments. Um, we can now take questions from uh, the audience. I would like to ask you to, um, to mention your name and affiliation when you uh, ask a question so that the ambassador knows uh, what's talking What do you consider to? affiliation? Is that political affiliation? <laughs> no, what do you withstand? Institutional stand for the yeah. community yeah. affiliation. Nonpartisan. <laughs> okay, questions. George. Uh, George Bunn, Center for International Security and Cooperation downstairs. Uh, I, I'm curious. I'm, I'm remembering that when NATO went to Afghanistan, there was a NATO resolution, NATO Council resolution, based on Article 5, I assume, uh, to the effect uh, that an attack on one is an attack on all. Therefore, we will go to the US defense against 9-11 <laughs> by city forces to Afghanistan. That was the substance of it, as I recall, a long time since I've seen it. But I, I was curious, I mean, according to our papers, the U.S. didn't ask for that. No, no, you're referring to one of the most difficult moments, I think, you know, within NATO, and it is of historic importance, is that rightly, you know, I mentioned it already indirectly, you know, after 9-11, you know, we took the decision to invoke Article 5, you know, immediately. The one was 11th September, you know, the other was 12th of September, and immediately, you know, probably through an intervention of the Canadian ambassador who said, why do we not raise the Article 5 uh, article, you know, which was not at the request of the United States. Very important to know. But, you know, it was seen in a certain way, you know, as a political gesture, and at that stage, you know, all the European countries, and I, I can speak very loudly and clearly on that because Belgium was the last one to accept the invocation of Article 5. You know, that was my predecessor, but it's part of a history which we know quite well because the Belgian government, although they, they were the closest of, you know, the headquarters in Brussels, you know, there was only two kilometers between the headquarters, had the greatest difficulty to take the decision for the simple reasons, you know, that the coalition government, you know, the socialist liberal government, wanted to know exactly what was the meaning of Article 5. You know, saying that what we never had invoked it. And the meaning is that each of the countries, you know, accepts, you know, and that's under the word solidarity, 
to help the country attacked, the amount of help, you know, the solidarity degree remains, you know, a free decision of each country. Why didn't the United States ask, you know, a military response from all NATO alliance at that stage, which I think was an error because at that stage my government no knew that they had to engage the troops, you know, wherever, you know, the operation Enduring Freedom, you know, uh, was going, you know, would have to engage the troops and other things. And there the Americans refer and remembering, you know, the Kosovo War, you know, the Balkan War, in fact, were not interested in having, you know, a war on committee, where the French president was every day co-deciding which military targets they should bomb or not bomb in, in, in Kosovo. And I think there, you know, I fully understand the American decision, which was a decision taken for reason of military efficiency, not wanting, you know, a certain number of second-rank military powers in Europe, mainly the French, to intervene every five minutes, you know, in the warfare. They say, we do not intervene. And it's only later that, you know, through the ISAF operation, which was then based not more on the Article 5, but on a UN resolution, you know, I, I don't remember the number exactly, who was launching a stability operation, which, if you remember well, was in the first stage, you know, led by the British, in the second stage, led by the Turks, in the third stage, led by a combined German-Dutch headquarter. And it's then suddenly that the German-Dutch headquarter, being afraid that they would not find a successor in the UN NATO led UN operation decide why don't we give it over, you know, to the integrated command structure of NATO and that indirectly to the window NATO enter into Afghanistan for a stability operation. You know, the word stability is very important. That's why my government is always more insisting on the word stability. We engage ourselves first, you know, in Kabul. And later on, you know, in the different direction of clockwise, you know, we started engaging in the north, you know, and that was then the zone which was given to the Germans. Then we went, you know, to the west, and that zone was taken over, you know, by the Italian and the uh, uh, Spaniards, uh, you know. And then suddenly we had a very difficult discussion within NATO because it was said that NATO would only take over, you know, from the operation from the American Enduring Freedom when there was sufficient stability in the southern parts. And there, yeah, there was enough stability that meant that there was no real fighting going on. But there, the Americans very cleverly say, we have, you know, the best integrated and the most powerful alliance of all times, NATO. We should push them in taking over to the south. And there, strangely enough, you know, the British, you know what I called in the syndrome of a post-colonial empire decided that they were defeated for 80 years in the southern Afghanistan, decided we are going to, to give a lesson to, to these people, you know, in Kandahar, jumped a bit quickly, you know, to take over the southern dimension, joined by the Canadians, you know, and a certain number of Australians and others. That's why I call that zone always the Commonwealth zone, you know, I call the northern zone, you know, Namibia, the western zone, I call it always the Mafia zone, the southern, you know, the Commonwealth zone, and the eastern zone, the Cowboy zone, that's your zone. <laughs> and then we took automatically the last zone. But you know, I think also there we made the biggest error, you know, is that dividing Afghanistan in military zones, which strangely enough, you know, was a copy of the way, you know, we were in Germany. 
And that is one of the main reasons of the difficulty at the moment in Afghanistan, is that each nation who is in charge of one region said, that, sorry, you know, we have our zone, we take care of our zone. And they are not prepared to disengage a certain number of their troops from the north to the south. You know, and that's the copy of the German model where there were four zones. They are not the same because there you had the Russian, the French, the British and the American zone. There you have, you know, a fifth zone also which is Kabul. And everybody saying, you know, but uh -huh, we take care of our zone and we are not prepared to go in the zones of the others because there once again the command is integration, but the sub-commands, you know, are still at the national level, another thing. And that is one of the reasons, you know, of the present lack of mobility of all troops is to say that everybody considers that they have a specific mission and that they should keep their troops in reserve in case, you know, there would be a destabilization of one of the issues there. And then we work to that issue, to that proposal, which I find good. We work to the Provincial Reconstruction Team, you know, the PRTs, you know, which was also then an element of, uh, let's say, of discussion. Because the PRTs were seen as, you know, by the United States as extremely a new original ID. And the French immediately said, but no, we have done it already for 100 years in Morocco and in other towns, you know, and it never worked. And so we were never able to develop, you know, the PRT as a combined military training and development issue. Uh, you know, if I visit Afghanistan three times, you know, if you go to Afghanistan, the PRTs are no more than a Roman camp as we had, you know, when the Romans invaded us, you know. It's a piece of land, you know, which is perfectly protected by four towers. And where in the morning you see a, f a few Humvees going somewhere, and during the night there is a great element of instability, and they retreat all, you know, or, you know, when you conquered, you know, uh, the west of the United States, you know, the military were operating in a huge camp, and every evening they were coming together, waiting that, that the night was over to progress the following day and, and uh, to, to make some progress. But there is a lack of integration of the local community into the PRT life. That's why Afghanistan remained an extremely difficult challenge, which we should win. But the degree of importance attached to Afghanistan is different, you know. Uh, you see it, you know, as the real hardcore of the terrorist presence in the world without being able to catch Bin Laden because he's moving, you know, over the border, you know, with Pakistan. And there is a huge piece of land which no government is, has ever controlled. You know, to have to realize that even under the British Empire, Waziristan was never controlled by anybody. Neither the Pakistan government or the Afghan government is able to control that piece of land. You, know, you need to see a map. It's a border region because all the borders are, are artificial, you know, and were drawn, you know, by certain Western, you know, they decided a certain morning that the borderline would be there. But there are no natural borderlines. And therefore, you know, all these people cross, and you can't see the difference between an Afghan Waziri, you know, and a Pakistani Waziri, you know. So, you know, a normal human being, you know, is not able to make a difference, and they cross the border without possible whenever, whenever they want. And therefore, Afghanistan remains extremely difficult, also due to the fact, you know, that we are not able to control, you know, the poppy uh, growth and other things, which is now the element, you know, of financing the warlords. Uh, the warlords having not accepted, you know, the political development of a parliament, are, are trying to reconfirm their strength over their territory, and a typical policy of the Middle Ages in our region in Europe, you know, they are still in the political Middle Ages, and the confrontation between the extremely quick evolution, you know, making, you know, a parliamentary, you know, democracy in a country which had never known any political development is extremely difficult. And the warlords are simply, simply the old 
you know, governors or, you know, lords of a certain territory who say we do not accept somewhere, you know, you know, the centralized authority of the capital. And so therefore, Afghanistan remains extremely difficult. But there are no minerals in Afghanistan, you know. So in fact, we are present in the poorest country in the world. You know, which means, what is the geostrategic importance of Afghanistan? It's a high political importance. But contrary to Iraq, there is no fuel, there is no minerals, there is nothing. You know, if you fly above Afghanistan, it's one of the poorest countries in the world, where never any foreign power was able to establish a solid power, starting from Alexander the Great over the Russians, you know, to now the, the NATO presence. But we have to find out exactly, is it the key elements of our security to remain there for another hundred years? There we have also an approach, which is essentially different, you know, between a global player which is the United States, who wants to have military bases everywhere in the world. You know, do not forget that you have 739 military bases abroad, uh, where the Europeans say, but we do not need, you know, we brought there a certain amount of stability, and go to the hell if they go on fighting among themselves. You see, there also there is a tension at the moment where most of the opinionists say we did a good job, where we are not prepared to die for Kabul, as I said already, and stay there for another 20 years. Where you see it, you know, the bases, the military bases of Bagram, is a key element in your general geostrategic approach, uh, because, you know, it's close to Russia, it's close to China. It's one of the best military bases, you know, to uh, launch any military attack in any circumstance, wherever you want, in Central Asia. So you see how many different elements are playing together, you know, in a, an issue as Afghanistan. Sorry, I was far too long in answering your question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, hi, Brown, also from the Center for International Security Cooperation. Um, could you discuss a little bit the issue of Turkey? Uh, you, in your triangle, uh, Turkey is a member of the United Nations and NATO. Should it also be a member of the European Union? Uh, and in that context, could you discuss also the issue of the Muslim communities in the European Union? Should they be integrated or should they be not? Should there be a NATO defense policy against the Muslim community in Europe? Well, the Turkish issue is uh, one of the most difficult issues for the European diplomacy at, at this stage. But let's take, you know, I'm belonging to the real politicians, you know, who see the issues as they are. We took the decision to accept Turkey within the European Union insofar the answer to all the criteria of the European Union. The, the, the political decision to have Turkey enter, you know, the European Union has been taken. But they have to go to all the procedures in order to bring, you know, their stage of political and judicial development at the same level of the European Union. That can take 10 to 15 years, you know, because, you know, there are a lot of issues, that penalty and others, you know, which make it very difficult to integrate, you know, their political system at, at the moment. So that is a simple, quite clear union. The decision to integrate Turkey, you know, has been taken. The difficulty, of course, is that are they ever going to integrate Europe? It's becoming more and more difficult for the simple reasons which I condemn is that some countries now have decided that, first of all, you need full approval of the 27 other countries and that some countries have taken the decision that whatever decision, it has to be uh, presented under form of referendum to their national population, which is not the right way to make politics. Uh, politics is, is so far an issue for parliaments. If you go on 
having the population decide about everything, you will never make any progress anymore. So we should uh, abolish the institution of referendum, which is the country of a responsible democratic system where it is a government and a Congress who takes this. Having said this, you know, you have to realize that integrating Turkey into Europe is uh, putting an end to some of the greatest division Europe has ever known in its history. You should remember, you know, that the Roman Empire at the end, I think it's 313, was split up between the Western Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire. That makes that, since that date, you know, you have a great, great difference between, you know, the two parts. You know, it was Rome against Byzance, Istanbul, you know, which is essential part, which brings me automatically to the second issue. Never forget that a great part of the European history was a fight between these two parts. You know, it was an Ottoman Empire. You know, never forget that the Turks tried to conquer Vienna in 1564 or 1465. Uh, you know, that's, uh, yeah, you know that. So, which is, you know, the the Turks have been seen, you know, as very aggressive towards Europe, you know, and uh, it's part of history. We were seen as extremely aggressive later on, and so everybody has been aggressive in this world, uh, except the Belgians, you know? No, no, it was not an invasion of Congo and uh, coming later, you know, it was a personal presence, you know, of the German Empire, you know, and Bismarck, because they didn't want to give it, you know, to any other main powers, you know, and we were reluctant to take it over. <laughs> Belgian Parliament voted by one vote to take it over from the king. But I'm coming back to Turkey. <laughs> and the third issue, you know, is that also, you know, the Ottoman Empire later on, you know, was highly influenced, you know, by Islam. So that, you know, it's nevertheless also the confrontation between, and the conf I don't like the word confrontation, but it's the coexistence between two elements, you know, and then we're coming back, you know, between, I would say, Rome and Mecca, uh, uh, so the issue of integration of Turkey is one of historic, of the greatest difficulty. We have taken a potentially positive decision up to Turkey to evolve. In the end, you have also to ask yourself the question, is Turkey in the end finally interested to join Europe for what it is? Uh, you know, that is also a question because I feel more and more, and that's what I call the neo-Ottoman trend into, into Turkey, to say that our place is in Europe, it's, but it's more also a bridge between Europe, you know, and the Middle East. And to become once again, you know, a world player, you know, uh, you know, and your Turkish diplomacy was one is the best of the world, you know, La Porte Sublime, you know, uh, in Istanbul is the, the symbol, you know, of your great diplomacy, which was put to an end at a certain stage. But you are more and more and more thinking also why not keep our influence, you know, in Turkmenistan, you know, in Kazakhstan and in Georgia and other places, you know, where we can play our own identity and our own role. So it will be up to the Turks in the end to find out if they really want to join, but I'm afraid about the stupid referenda in a lot of countries which will make it very difficult. Now, you should realize also that there is a perfect way of cooperating between the European Union and Turkey in different ways. Eh? You can be part you know, of an economic free trade area, you can be part of a lot of institutions without being, you know, within the European as such. Uh, that will be up to the evolution of Turkey, whose evolution is not that clear neither, you know. Is Mustafa Kemal Atatürk a normal political phenomenon 
or is it a totally abnormal political phenomenon? Uh, I'm a great believer in Mustafa Kemal Atatürk because I think what he did to Turkey is huge. And in fact, we should need that type of leaders in Afghanistan and Iraq. That is exactly the type of leaders we, we need in that type of countries. You know, uh, you know, autocratic military rulers who are, who are clever enough to give the economic development to their country to bring it there at the stage where they're interested in democracy. And I find the present democratic evolution of Turkey rather positive. Uh, I was not in favor of members of parliament abstaining to vote. But I also understand that some people are nevertheless a little bit afraid about the Islamization, you know, of the present political situation in Turkey. Uh, so open questions, you're welcome. Uh, but not everybody is agreed to take you within Europe. And not Turks are, are interested, you know, in entering the European Union neither. The European Union is more than a, a jackpot, you know, where you, you have the money falling into your hands to develop your own country, you know. It's a political integration. Integrating Turks is maybe not that easy. <laughs> uh, well, I was going to ask about that prime topic, uh, but thank you for that answer. So let me, uh, another geopolitical question about North Africa. Uh, you had mentioned it briefly, and I wondered if you could speak a little further, especially in terms of, mention the uh, a bit of a triad of NATO, UN, EU, uh, and after Berlin Plus, continuing to try to resolve the relationship between these three multilateral bodies, uh, whether it's for humanitarian or crisis intervention, or for extending and developing and enriching integration relationships. Uh, what do you see, let's say, five to ten years down the road as, a, as an improvement in geopolitical relations between North Africa, Maghreb especially, and these bodies? Thank you for this question, which is very interesting question and the way you were presenting the question was also uh, very interesting because you know if you ask a Belgian you know and mainly a southern European country you know we can always have regional approaches you know and we had one of the NATO summits which was in Riga so the Baltic Sea the next one you know in the Black Sea but the most important of all seas remain in the Mediterranean uh, Sea you know which is which is our history you know the Mare Nostrum uh, you know from the Romans that's where you know most of our uh, civilization was born, starting, you know, from Egypt, and I don't speak between what is between Tigris and Euphrates, which is the real birth of our civilization. But after that, it's quite clear, you know, that Greece, Rome, you know, North Africa, you know, Hannibal and others, you know, we are belonging to the same world. And I was very interested to find out that uh, Sarkozy immediately presented a new Mediterranean policy, mm -hmm. uh, which we favor 100%, you know, we should do everything, you know, to develop, you know, the level, uh, you know, of the southern Mediterranean countries, you know, to bring that the same level, and to create also a free trade, uh, you know, the NATO Mediterranean policy, you know, is very positive. There are only seven members countries, but we should try to integrate them all. And of course, whenever you speak about that, you, know, you will refer rightly, you know, to Morocco, Tunisia, and Algeria, and then you know when you approach, you know, uh, the other side of the ring, you have an extremely difficult problem of Israel, you know, and Arab world. But I think it's one of the possibilities to solve the problem is also to integrate there, you know, and Lebanon, and Egypt, you know, and Israel, and Palestine, you know, in a global policy, uh, you know, uh, creating one area of peace and security where we would avoid all fights. So 
I'm heavily supporting whatever policy of Mediterranean integration. I created, a, you know, a special partnership with the European Union and a special Barcelona process, you know, mm -hmm. which is well known, and a special partnership with Mediterranean Dialogue, you know, integrated further also. And there I'm referring, you know, the only way also to bring Cyprus and Turkey, you know, mm -hmm. maybe also closer together. Cyprus, you know, whatever the solution we find there. And Malta also, which is also refusing to enter the Mediterranean Dialogue, but nevertheless accept the Barcelona process. Uh, we should bring them all together in one common area. But the only thing that is very strange is that in the Mediterranean Dialogue of NATO, you have also Mauritania. Which is not exactly, you know, a part of. In fact, there are a lot of NATO countries which are not member of the, of the Mediterranean uh, uh, Sea. Even Portugal, if anybody knows, is not a member of Mediterranean countries. You know, they are only part of the Atlantic area. So definitely, also integration of the Mediterranean area, you know, is one of the priorities we should pursue in all circumstances. Okay. So where are the students? No students? Other questions? <laughs> <laughs> there are no stupid questions, there are only stupid answers. That's <laughs> okay, I guess I can have a question. Yeah. Um, one of the things you're saying is about when you go in and you build up a country, like, or you go in with military force, want to apply double the money to like their infrastructure and stuff like that. Do you think that if you can't, if you don't have the resources for that, you just shouldn't go in at all? Like, basically, like it's not worth it to do the military work unless you can do the infrastructure work? No, um, I think, you know, my idea is quite clearly you have to make a certain number of military operations. Uh, that is quite clear. Uh, the only element where I'm a bit more prudent is how long should the military operation last? Uh, you know, it's quite clearly that, you know, a military operation in the beginning is quite often seen, you know, as a liberation, but we have to recognize also and I'm not speaking about, you know, what happened in Europe because there we had enough shared values, you know, U.S. presence in Europe was never considered as an occupation. But I'm afraid the longer you stay in quote-unquote third world countries, you know, that the more, you know, a military president, being from NATO, being from the United States, being from France or whatever country, will automatically change itself into a military occupation. And therefore I prefer, you know, a military operation of a short term you know, followed by a training period where you go back to a certain number of camps and provide the necessary training you know, to the local troops in order for them to take over. And at the same time, you know, a substantial uh, development effort and other things. But you have to, to see when you know the amount of money we spend in a military operation compared, you know, with what we spend on development, you know, the proportion is, is you know, from, I don't say one to hundred, but you know, at least one to ten. To ten, and that is a false proportion at a certain stage. So, but you, I can also understand that the United States being a world power, you know, and wants to have a global power, and wants to have a military presence in, in many, many places. You know, there. Therefore, you develop at the same time, you know, a local element of stabilizing, but at the same time, on a parallel track, you automatically develop a presence of military bases, which, in case of global confrontation, should be useful. Uh, and that is, of course, you know, that is an element of a superpower, you know. Uh, coming back, I was, uh, and Ronald knows already, I say, for my three last postings, you know, the artwork is the difference, I say, you know, in Germany, I was in a bilateral post, in NATO, in a multilateral post, and, and in the United States, in a unilateral post. <laughs> <laughs> because you are, 
a superpower, you know, and that superpower of the moment, the whole difficulty of the superpower is remain the superpower with the right leadership. Uh, and that is the great difficulty. I can only encourage you, you know, to read the last book of Brzezinski, which is a brilliant book, you know, about uh, what is your future leadership in the, in the world. Because everybody accepts the leadership. It's the content of the leadership which gives rise, you know, to a certain number of issues. But do not forget what I say, the attractivity of your society for the third world, you know, it's your way of living. That is what attracts people. Uh, that is what, you know, the normal man in the street of Kabul wants also to have, you know, his, his telephone and his Blackberry. That is what he wants, you know, and his bike and his motorcycle, you know, and everything. That is what attracts, and his Coke. Uh, you know, Coke remained the symbol of the American society uh, uh, in the third world. You export it everywhere. Yeah, it's strange, but you have to see it, you know. Uh, the freedom of speech, you know, and democracy is only attractive in the first stage of development, according to my analysis. Uh, people in the street of Kabul are not begging, you know, to, to go on the, on the, on the vote uh, poll station. You know? In France, yes, uh, because that the supreme art of policy is to fight your, you know, the others uh, and, and to discuss issues. But in, in Congo, they enjoy it for one day because they think, you know, they're going to change uh, the face of their, their political system, but, you know, they remain as poor, you know, after the election as before, because none of the African leader was able to deliver. Sorry. I have to say it uh, in a very crude way, you know. You can make them 100 elections at the moment. Sorry, they remain as poor in the streets of Kinshasa at the moment. Last question, Werner. Okay, sure. You briefly mentioned Russia and China and kind of their growing influence in the world, and I'm also thinking about maybe Latin America with um, the left in Latin America, with Chavez's influence, and more regional integration in South America, especially. And looking at um, the question is the European Union, Europe in general, serving as a uh, another, I guess, world power on the level of maybe developing China, Russia, and Latin America, and the United States, or uniting with the United States in a common front against, not against militarily, of course, but against economically and in terms of value system and other issues against China and the Latin American kind of growing consensus in Russia. No, no, I definitely belong to the school, you know, where I think, you know, that we should further integrate, you know, the two sides of the Atlantic into a, a solid partnership in order to be able to face emerging new countries as China, uh, which is, are not to be seen as enemy, but ensure that on the economic side, uh, there are real challenges for us. Uh, so, you know, the more United States and Europe unite, and which will not always be easy, but from time to time we have good summits, you know, the last summit, you know, where we decided also to further integrate uh, our, our economy and avoiding, you know, all regulations which make that the European economy is not being to cooperate with the US economy. In all these fields, you know, we should further integrate as much as possible because the huge challenge will be, you know, the third world at the moment. You know, do not forget that even with our five millions of uh, 500 million Europeans and 300 million Americans, you know, we are facing uh, seven billion, you know, uh, other countries, other people in, in the world, and that the economic development as countries, you know, as China, Russia is a bit more slowly is of India, you know, are really issues where we should try to have a common approach in, in finding out how we can tackle this problem. And not Ronald spent uh, a great time of his life in Latin America. Mm. I'm totally unaware about uh, Latin America, that I must confess is, uh, I'm lacking any experience. I just spent uh, 24 hours in Rio de Janeiro for the Environment <laughs> Summit uh, 
admiring, you know, the beach, but for the rest, you know, uh, and the girls, uh, you know, <laughs> but for the rest, uh, I've noticed that he was ambassador to Argentina, you know, you spent also in Venezuela. Yes, we, but we are working very actively, you know, establishing better relationship with, with Latin America, you know, Mercosur, especially we've been negotiating with Mercosur for many, many years. We haven't been able to reach a full agreement so far, but uh, we have common roots with uh, Latin America. They are still very strong. You feel very strongly that the, even in populations like Mexico or Colombia or Venezuela, the European roots remain very strong. There is one interesting issue at the moment in discussion and referring to open discussion we have with the United States is what to do the day Castro dies. And there, uh, I, I'm referring exactly the way you know it was discussed with American diplomats. You know they pre they presented as a school between Europeans favoring rather stability in the months following you know the death of Castro, and the U.S. school favoring a, a democratic a speedy democratization process. Uh, and that is very interesting. Whatever. When we discuss about Ukraine, when we discuss about Belarus, and other, it's always that kind of opposition. And I, I'm quoting the words used by the State Department: you know, stability versus democratization policy. Which does not mean that the Europeans do not favor democratizations, but they see it through a slower process where you are prepared to assume a quick demo, uh, democratization, even with a certain uh, element of instability. It's a political choice, you know. Uh, in, in, poli in politics, you should never say somebody is right and wrong. Uh, you, you only see later on, you know, if you were successful. Uh, and that is a very difficult uh, choice to make, you know, more, more prudent Europe, you know, with historic experience. You say, well, let's work on it, but let's take our time. We say, no, uh, good change, you know. Uh, even if after that there are a few deaths in the street of, uh, of Havana, it's not bad, you know, uh, they tell the revolution. So, and, and, and that is an issue which is very important in politics. Is there we have from time to time different approach, but the final goal between Europe and the United States is always the same. That is quite clear. Uh, the way we achieve it may be a bit uh, different. Okay. Thank you very much, Ambassador. Thank you. you said you said this is your first visit to California and to Stanford. We definitely hope. It will not be your last one in the year to Thank you very much. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.